You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture. Right beliefs must domino into right living or else it's hypocrisy. It's all for nothing. The gospel of grace that a church clings to and loves and believes should create a culture of grace among us. So we saw last week in this vision series about how our first value is is the gospel and gospel doctrine in Christ, how the first placeness of Jesus in everything and all things, now it should create an environment, a church where Jesus is first. And we live in light of that reality of Christ's firstness together. And that's what we're looking at in this vision series, how gospel doctrine, how the gospels are doctrine, the gospels are culture, and the gospel is our mission. And it's good for us, I think, every year to take some time to recalibrate, to kind of replant and remind ourselves what our church is all about. And this is our mission, our mission as a body of people in Tomball, Texas, together, worshiping Jesus, is to make disciples and to make much of Jesus. This is our mission. That's why we're here. And that's why you exist. That's why you were saved, to make disciples and make much of Jesus. And how we're going to make disciples is with that gospel doctrine, teaching that Christ is first in all things, connecting Christ to all of life. He's the power and, and hope for everything. But we can't just have the right teaching. We can't just have the right doctrine. It's got to be lived out in a gospel culture on gospel mission. And as a church tucked away in the suburbs of Houston, here in the Bible Belt, and a place where people play church. People play church in our area. They go to church because that's what you're supposed to do. It's Sunday. I want to get my life, you know, right. I'm going to go to church. I go to church on Easter. go to church on Christmas and go to church on Mother's Day. People play church. They don't think about Jesus throughout their week. They don't organize their lives around the glory of Christ. They just play church. But a gospel culture says, no, we don't play church. We must be a people that shines as lights in the darkness, that does. We do teach and preach the firstness of Jesus over everything, but also we must be a people where we live it, where it's sensed. It's the vibe of our church. And that's where Paul takes us next in Colossians. We're just going to be going through this little section in Colossians these four weeks. And so last week we left off in Colossians 2.15. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2.16. Last week we saw how Christ is the message Paul proclaims. Christ is the message. His, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. He's our content. He took that record of debt that was against us. It was nailed to his cross and he's alive in heaven for us. And since that's true, we pick up in verse 16. And so as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Since Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities by his cross for us, verse 16, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you 
by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm, such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head for whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. And although these have the reputation for wisdom, by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Help us now, Holy Father, as we look at your word. Would, we, would our minds be set in this moment above where Christ is seated for us? Reigning, ruling, mediating, interceding, loving. Help us now, King Jesus. For we have died and we've been raised with you to new life. So it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'm getting my son, Oliver, ready for bed the other night and taking the shirt off that he's got on. It's got ketchup all over it from dinner. And he take it off and he grabs it. He says, I can do it. And he takes his shirt and he throws it across the room. And as he's throwing it across the room, he just unprompted yells out on his own, James Harden. And he throws his shirt across the room. It's clear in that moment, my children are growing up Rockets fans. So much so that the other day, a friend from church was at our house and the kids are playing and also a kid from the neighborhood was over and they're all hanging out and I'm on my way out to go play basketball and the neighborhood kid, he loves basketball too. He says, oh, I love basketball. And Natalie asks him, well, who's your favorite player? And this poor boy, this poor boy said, Steph Curry. And before I could say anything, my children, Ivy and Oliver, both started booing him and giving him double thumbs down in his face. Boo! It was the happiest parenting moment of my life. Now, I never had to sit my kids down and explain to them the merit and godliness of being a part of Red Nation. They just picked it up on their own. I never had to teach them how to haze a Warriors fan. They just picked it up on their own. Now, I did teach them. This is James Harden. This is Chris Paul, blah, blah, blah. But they learned how to live it on their own just because of the vibe and culture of our home. Beloved, this is how church cultures work. Things you just pick up, some are taught, but some are just shared and lived and acquired and then spread throughout a church body. The church culture, culture is the real beliefs of the church lived out. 
culture is the real beliefs of the church lived out. You can have the right doctrine, but you can deny it by how we treat one another and how we treat people outside this room. And so listen, this picture I'm about to put up is haunting. And it describes exactly what we're looking at and what I'm getting at. The church in Oregon, right doctrine, demonic culture. Jesus saves in the background, but then a demonic culture right in front of it. It is possible for churches to have the right doctrine, but then betray it by how they treat one another, how they treat others, how they live, and not, not actually hold to that right teaching. And Ray Ortland helps us see that there you could have an imbalance. You could treat one another really well, but then also have all the wrong beliefs and deny the exclusivity of Christ, deny the bodily resurrection, deny sin. So we've got to have both. So Ray helps us with this little equation. Gospel doctrine, those right beliefs, without gospel culture is hypocrisy. It's not real. But gospel culture, kindness, generosity, love, without gospel doctrine, without the truth, is weakness, fragility. But to have both, to have that right teaching, that gospel doctrine, and then also it's lived out in power in the church, that's gospel culture. That's power from on high. And Colossians shows us what this gospel doctrine is meant to lead to, to gospel culture. But we got to pursue it. we got to fight for it together. We have to fight the impulses of our flesh to sin against one another. And we, we got to fight the impulses of our sinful nature to hold grudges and to, and to gossip and to belittle one another. And Paul shows us one way we must do this. Point one, a gospel culture ignores church bullies. A gospel culture ignores ch church bullies. Look at verse 16 of chapter two. Therefore, this is that first word. You should always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because 2, 1 through 15 is true. Since Jesus died in our place, since Jesus took that record of debt that was against us and was nailed to his cross, since he disarmed the rulers and authorities, since he rose from the dead, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food, drink, he continues, or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Since Jesus is Lord, church bullies are not. And church bullies are real. They were real then, they're real today. He says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food, drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbath days. These are all holdovers from Judaism. And there are people you can see in this church that are trying to force it on these Christians saying, if you want to be a real Christian, you really want to care about God, then you'll do this festival. Then you'll, you won't eat pork. You, you will let your hair grow out into ringlets. You will only wear this kind of clothing. And so he's saying, no, 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 that's old school stuff. And look what he says in 17. Those were shadows of what was to come. The substance is Christ. These are all meant to point to Jesus, to show us we need Jesus. These things don't change us. Only Jesus can. So when someone says in Colossae, if you really care about Jesus, you won't eat pork. Or when someone says in the Bible Belt, if you really care about Jesus, you won't drink alcohol. Or you won't do this. Or you won't do this kind of schooling. We say to church bullies, no. No. And when he says, don't let, he, he's not saying get up in their face and knock them out. 
He says it again in 18, let no one. He's not saying get aggressive towards them because then we would betray a gospel culture if we're ungracious to those who are betraying the grace of God. You see? So what does he mean? It's in verse 20. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. But he's saying, don't submit to that. You ignore the church bullies. They have no power. They have no authority over you because the last time I checked, Christ is the one who canceled the record of debt that was against us by nailing it to the cross. Now there's a word for us here. A gospel culture refuses to be judgmental puffed up towards one another. There are all kinds of preferences and opinions that we're going to share throughout this room. Choices you've made in your life and and in your family. But now we don't force them on each other, overtly or covertly. And the covert one is the dangerous one. We all know we don't overtly like put things on other people, but covertly is when someone lives differently than you, believes something different from you. That's not, you know, is Jesus God? Those kinds of essential things. And then you're, oh, you're kind to them, but then when they leave, you go back to espionage. And you spread, oh, they do this, they don't believe this, they don't do this. No, we refuse to be bullies. And we went over this a ton in Galatians. It's all throughout our series in Galatians, but it's also here in Colossians. And I've seen it. Some Christians, they do think it's sinful to drink alcohol. The Bible doesn't say that, to say to get drunk. We all agree with that. But their conscience says, it's wrong for me, and that's fine. That honors the Lord. If your conscience has bound you to say, I can't partake in this or I can't live this way, that's fine. It becomes bullying when we put it onto others. Unless it's a clear command in scripture and it's not binding on other Christians, Paul says this clearly in Romans 14 when he says, one person believes he may eat anything. Example would be like pork. While the one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats... The pork, or we could say who drinks, must not look down on the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, I've seen church people try and coerce people to abstaining from alcohol when their conscience hasn't bound them, or to guilt people into homeschooling or some other kind of schooling choice. I've even been around another man who wanted, wanted us to say that it was sinful for a married woman to earn a living. A gospel culture says, no, you're wrong. You're a church bully. We will not submit to that. And it gets even stronger in verse 18. Look, so 16, judge. 18, let no one condemn you. Much stronger word than just judge. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. He's saying, don't let anyone condemn you with their elevated spirituality. Now, this word condemn is the same word that's used of an umpire in like Greco-Roman Olympics, where a judge would be watching this Olympic contest and then he would disqualify one, declare them, you lost, it's over, you're out. Condemned. Very much, we all understand this if you're an Astros fan, just this past week, Altuve slides in at home, not tagged. Yeah, he's making the safe motion. He was safe. Re- they call him out. They do replay. Clearly, not tagged in the replay. But they call him out. He was condemned by the umpire. This is the exact same word Paul's getting at here. And there are people in Colossae that love their churchiness. And there are people that we will encounter that love their churchiness. 
They love to talk about how much they know and how spiritual they are and how much you don't know. So when he talks about these ascetic practices, these are people who were, they were going above and beyond, going crazy with their pursuit of religion. And it would be something like this today. You're talking with someone, oh, did you see that new show on Netflix? And they would say, instead of just going, oh, no, I haven't seen it. They would say something like this. No, I don't have Netflix. We, uh, I just spend all my time reading my Bible. And we cut Netflix and Hulu and, and all that just to, to give to foreign missions instead. Um, you should consider it the same. Right? It, it, see, it's fine that they would do that on their own. But when you start to condemn others for not partaking in an ascetic practice or, oh, no, I spent all my time learning Hebrew and Greek. Sorry. I spent all my time reading Calvin's Institutes. How come you don't? In French, how come you don't do that? Hey, you want to go out to eat after church? No, I'm, I've been fasting. I, the Lord's Supper almost hurt my stomach. I, I can't believe I even took that. See, it's this kind of like boasting spirituality that's overtly and covertly bullying you and condemning you. And the gospel culture says, no, we don't submit to that. So now we must ask ourselves, how, do you, how are you tempted to evaluate others? How are you tempted to judge others or to condemn others? Now, I grew up Southern Baptist. So which means while I'm grateful for my heritage, it means I have a lot of baggage too. Southern Baptists have a lot of junk to work through. Now, the church I grew up in in the 90s, it didn't have these exact categories, of course. But our culture, you can fill in the blanks, our church culture condemned others that weren't SBC. I don't know if you grew up Southern Baptist, but... At that time in my life, it's like, if you weren't Southern Baptist, you were a weirdo. If you were Methodist, it's like, I don't even know what to do with you. If you spoke in tongues or something like that, you obviously don't care about the Bible and you don't love Jesus. But no one ever said that from the pulpit. No one ever said that in Sunday school classes. It was just this thing that was kind of caught and covertly taught in the way we spoke of others what we really believed. And I remember one time, someone, a woman, this one woman in the church, she raised her hands during the singing. Not, sorry, she didn't raise her hands. She raised her hand. Yay high. Laser beam eyes put on her. And I remember being in high school and hearing people talk about her in the lobby. Who does she think she is? Her showboating up there, her worship, rubbing her worship in our face. This this was in your face? See, it was just in the culture. Listen, I personally disagree with Presbyterians on baptism, but not on Jesus. I disagree with my Presbyterian friends on baptism, but not on Jesus. I disagree with, with Pentecostals on how they practice some of the gifts, but not on Jesus. And we will disagree with one another on all kinds of non-essential things. But we are united in Jesus because he is the only one who took the record of debt that was against you. And it was, it was put on his cross. Not our choices, not our preferences, not our opinions, not us being Acts 29 and not us having reformed theology. None of those things. And the scary thing about it is that an ungospel culture can go undetected because we can comfort ourselves by affirming truth. But Paul says, no, no, no. You know why legalism happens? Here's why legalism happens. 
It's in verse 19. He doesn't hold on to the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, all of us together, nourished and held together by its ligaments, tendons, and grows with growth from God. So you know how the whole body is nourished? Not by one person's opinions, not by one person's ideas, not by extra biblical commands, but we are held together and we grow by depending on Christ. A gospel culture depends on Christ. Jesus is our power. All of us, we all cling to him. He's how we grow. And I I love how Paul says this, this last phrase at the end of 19. Look at the end of 19. And he says that the church grows with growth from God. With growth from God. A church that makes much of Jesus. That's a gospel culture that knows that growth comes not from Paul. That growth comes not from the pastors. That growth comes not from slick marketing materials and the right lighting and, and a great facility. See, a lot of churches, they end up thinking, oh, growth, you've got to have the right marketing. You know, Starbucks has slick marketing materials. But no one is being raised from the dead in Starbucks, no matter how strong that coffee is. A gospel culture is radically dependent on God. He grows us. But church culture, Bible Belt culture, put emphasis on environments and experiences and checking the boxes, playing the part. And I I often hear, we got to get people churched. We got to get people churched. I condemn that. I have no interest in seeing people get churched. I have infinite interest in seeing people get in Christ. As we cling to Christ. We aren't playing the church game here, selling religious goods and services. You know, someone once told Francis Chan, a pastor in California, told him after one of their services, said, I didn't really enjoy worship today. We know what they're saying. I didn't like the songs. I didn't like the vibe, blah, blah, blah. I didn't really enjoy worship today. Chan replied, that's fine. We weren't worshiping you anyways. A gospel culture doesn't play church. A faithful church doesn't put any weight on the church's coolness, its likability, functionality, acceptability. God gives the growth. And here's the doctrine that reminds us of all this. Verse 20, if you died with Christ. If you've died with Christ to the elements of this world, to the gang mentality of this world, Why do you live as if you still belong to the world? So you see how gospel doctrine leads to the right culture? If this is true, you've died with Christ. Why are you living this way? So have you died with Christ? Were you nailed to that cross with Christ? When he was dying, you were dying. Your sins were put on him. Your old life, were they there? Paid for in full, in your place. And if so, then you've died to the ways of the world. It's patterns, it's expectations. Why do you live like you're still part of it? You don't have to submit to church bullies. You belong to another culture. The gospel defines our lives. It defines our actions. It defines our affirmations. And legalism and playing church, all that has a reputation for being helpful. It's sold as being helpful. That's what Paul says in verse 23. Look at what he says. Beginning in 22, all these regulations don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Verse 21, they're, they're destined to perish. 
They're human commands, he says, and doctrines, verse 23. And although these have a reputation for wisdom, by promoting DIY self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, look at what he says, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Legalism doesn't change anybody. It sells that it does. It looks like it does. But think about it. The Old Testament law didn't change anyone. The Old Testament law didn't change anyone's hearts. And legalism is now that moronic deduction. Well, if God's laws didn't change people's hearts, maybe mine will. I can add on. I can include some other things. And now we'll really see the change. But a gospel culture says, no, we depend on Christ and what Christ has told us. We rely on Jesus and his commands, his leadership, his way, because not only do we defy and ignore church bullies, and yes, we do depend on Christ. But the third thing a gospel culture does is this. A gospel culture is calibrated to above. Look at verse one of chapter three. So if you've been raised with Christ, do you see the connection? 2.20, he says, if you died with Christ. Now 3.1, if you've been raised with Christ. So the whole gospel now defines and shapes how we live. So if you die to those old ways, you've been raised to a new way. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So we reject church bullying. We reject fake Christianity. We affirm the ways of Christ. We aren't here to play church. And since we've been raised, he makes the rules. He sets the agenda. He sets the guidelines. And we seek the things above. Christ is seated. You know what this means, beloved? It means we are now clued into a new dimension. We are in another dimension, another dimension. We have a new plane of thinking. You're in a new era of enjoyment now for how you would have normally lived. That's why he says, seek. Seek the things above. And I can't help but think about the fad that's come and gone with Pokemon Go. When this was at its heyday popular, Nally and I were in Long Beach, California at this X29 church planning event. And we were on a pier walking and talking. And there were droves of people just with their phones everywhere catching thingamajigs and didgeridoos and all kinds of stuff. I don't know what they're doing. But there must have been a really special Pokemon in this area because people were running over there, catching it with their phones, and then running back happy, running back excited, jumping and clicking their heels together. They were seeking, they found, and they were filled with joy. Paul says, seek the things above where Christ is seated. What are those things above where Christ is? We just think about it. What is above for us? His reign, his rule, Christ's forgiveness, Christ's mercy. His firstness is manifested in heaven. His love, his supremacy, Jesus himself is there. And Paul says, look above, seek them above. And now verse two, set your mind on those things above, not on earthly things. So you seek, you find, and you set, you lock in. Just like when a dog in your kitchen and you open that jar of peanut butter, wherever that peanut butter goes, that dog is missile lock on that jar of peanut butter. And so we should be the same way. 
on the things above. But Paul knows our temptation is to set our minds on earthly things. And we could spend all day cataloging all the earthly things that we get our minds set on. And that, that's now how we interpret the world. That's now how we interpret our lives. That's now how we judge one another. That's how we respond to one another. Paul says, no, no, no. Above. Not sports. Not politics. Not money. Not things that, things that are not sinful in themselves. But we turn into sinful things. Paul says a gospel culture is calibrated to above, to the culture of heaven. And no, do we set our mind on things above to escape what's happening here? No, that would be wrong. To, oh man, I'm, this is too bad. Things are too shaky. Things are too weird. I just got to set my mind on, I'm setting my mind on things above. No, no, no. That's not it. We set our mind on things above, not to escape what's happening in the headlines, not to escape what's happening in your neighborhood or in your family, but so you can live rightly so you can think rightly about these things, so you can love rightly in the midst of these things. Where, where Christ is seated is now the lens through which you view, a grid through which how you interpret life. We set our mind on his promises. We set our mind on his love, on the inheritance above, because, verse 3, for why? For you died. You don't belong to this world anymore. You have a death certificate to this world. You've been set free from the gang hive mind of this world. And you now, for you died, and where are you? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died with Christ. You belong to Christ now. Do you think Christ is overwhelmed by American politics? No. Neither should we. Do you think Christ is overwhelmed by what's in your bank account? No, and neither should we. See, our life is hidden with Christ in God. So we are, you are so united to Jesus that wherever he goes, you are there with him. And this is the same word we saw last week. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Well, you know what else is hidden in Christ? You. You are there. Wherever he goes, you are there. What's ever his is now yours. Your life, your identity is his, is Christ's. Now listen, you can't always see it. That's why it's hidden. You don't see your inheritance to come. You don't see your forgiveness. You don't see your eternity, but it's in Christ. And if, you, if we really do believe that not only is my life hidden in Christ, but so is Brian Cross's life hidden in Christ. So is Jeff Manna's life hidden in Christ. So is Jana Bowles' life hidden in Christ. So is Krishna Mobley's life hidden in Christ. That means now the way that we look at, the way we look at one another is not on skin color. It's not on our own personal histories. It's not on what we've done or haven't done, what we've accomplished, what we drive, where we live, how much we make, how pretty we are, how handsome we are, how strong we are, how old we are. None of those things now. Because your life is hidden in Christ. So now there's no pettiness in a gospel culture. Nothing else can, can set out our guidelines. Nothing else can set up rules and for how we should love and judge one another. No, no, just Christ. We see one another as your life is hidden in Christ too. Your life is hidden in Christ. And so now, verse four, you know what a gospel culture realizes? That when Christ, I love this about Jesus who is your life. That's another definition. Who is Jesus? He is your life. 
He is your life. He sets your life. And look at this. When he appears. So one day the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And with the cry of an archangel, the Lord shall descend. And when that happens, look, then you also will appear with him in glory. So when the risen Jesus, when he appears on that white horse with a robe dipped in blood, you will finally realize my hope in my life is not defined by what I own. My life is not defined by what I've done or haven't done, but by that robe dipped in blood, by that name written on his leg, by the Alpha and the Omega, All of a sudden, all the things that you haven't seen, you haven't seen your forgiveness. You haven't seen your eternal life. You haven't seen your inheritance that is to come at the end of the age. But when he appears, light bulb. It all makes sense. And not only will it make sense to you, it'll make sense to all the other redeemed saints that are standing next to you. Then you will finally look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and understand Christ is your life too. And Christ is your life too. Not your money, not your history, not your accomplishments, not your house, not your popularity, Christ. And so we refuse to define anyone by any man-made expectations. We refuse to judge one another on our preferences and choices and opinions. A gospel culture refuses to condemn for doing things differently because we're united in Christ. Even if that person isn't a Rockets fan and will most certainly get booed by my children, We are united in Christ. Our life, our life is hidden with him. Let's pray together. King Jesus, would you, by your graciousness, create a gospel culture among us where there is right belief, there is right thinking, there is right studying of the scriptures, there is right thinking. And would you also bring right living among us? But we wouldn't submit to church bullies. We wouldn't submit to fear, mongering and puffed up chest and inflated, empty spirituality. That we cling to you. That we would depend on you. That we're calibrated to you. So would the culture of heaven be among us? Would we be an embassy of the heavenly places? May your kingdom come and your will be done in Redeemer Church as it is in heaven, and in Tomball as it is in heaven, in Houston and on earth as it is in heaven. We praise you, King Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today or you're in the band, I invite you to come forward now at at this time. As we go to the Lord's table, we do something that we do every week in remembrance of Christ. We remember his body being nailed on that cross. And we we remember his blood flowing down to forgive us of all of our sins. And we also remember that that body rose again from the dead. And we remember that he's alive in heaven now, inviting sinners to believe in him for forgiveness of sins. And we're reminded by that cup that there is also blood pumping through his body in heaven now. So if you're not a Christian, we're thrilled you're here. But we want you to know that this moment, this bread and this cup, that it's only for those who know Christ is my life. Christ did cancel the record of debt that was against me. 
My life is hidden with Christ. I've died with Christ. I've raised with Christ. And he is my life. And he will appear for me again. If you don't believe that yet, this is not for you. But you could believe it today. You could believe and trust Christ today. And he'll welcome you into his kingdom. If you are a Christian, if you have died with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, take one set of the cups. Bread is on bottom. Juice is on top. And as you hold these things, you remember, my life is hidden with Christ in his body and in his blood. And he is my life and he will appear. And he is our culture. So grab one set of the cups. I'll come back up. We'll eat and drink and we'll worship Jesus as we continue. So let's worship him together now. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.